Hi, and welcome to Halfwood History. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Kylie. And this is a show where we talk about the upcoming week, but a long time ago. And sometimes not so long ago. Yeah. Do you have any updates? Um, other than the fact that we postponed our wedding? No. <laughs> yeah, that's a big update. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, yeah. Well, all the planning that was happening that may have contributed to our delay in episodes is definitely, definitely contributed to the delay in episodes because remember how there was like a month where I was calligraphying envelopes? Yeah. Yeah. All that hard work down the drain. Yeah. On the bright side for listeners, that means that we have more time to get episodes to you. Also more time to wallow in depression, but that's beside the point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway. So if you remember from last episode, we mentioned that in order to catch up, because we are woefully behind, uh, we're just going to do one person per episode. So this week is Kylie's episode. Uh, next week, you'll get me, and we're going to trade off until we're back caught up to actually being at this Week in History podcast. Which is funny, because today you were like, I definitely want, like, we should be caught up by the 52nd episode, because that'll be the anniversary or whatever. Yeah. It occurred to me that that means that I have to do an extra solo episode. Yes, because 52 means that we'll both be on and I'm doing the evens until then. Shame on you. <laughs> oh, well, got to do what we got to do. Okay, so my topic for today is on March 24th, 1890, John Rock was born in Marlboro, Massachusetts. What, Marlboro? Yes, do, do you have any idea who John Rock might be? No, tell me who. He was an American obstetrician and gynecologist who co-developed the first birth control pill. Oh, okay. Yeah, so like... Hometown pretty, hero. Yeah, I mean, yes, literally. Like, I have it written in my notes, but uh, part of the reason that I wanted to talk about him is because he's from Marlboro, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is where we live, so... Woo. Okay, come get at us, stalkers. <laughs> I mean... It's a pretty spread out town, so yeah. like narrowing down our actual locale would be a little difficult. Please do not challenge listeners. The internet does bad things. This is not a challenge. Please don't. <laughs> All right. So Dr. John Rock was born on March 24th, 1890, and he went to the High School of Commerce in Boston and then set his sights on a career in business. After working on a banana plantation in Guatemala and briefly at a Rhode Island engineering firm, Rock realized business wasn't quite for him. <laughs> and he turned his attention to medicine, kind of like you deciding that podcasting is your real passion, not engineering. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait until this pays my bills. <laughs> Let's hope your bosses don't listen. Oh, well. So he graduated from the Harvard University Medical School in 1918 and then worked at several Boston area women's hospitals before he established his own medical practice. He was raised his entire life as a devout Roman Catholic, and he retained his faith despite his scientific education, which I have heard, not being a scientist, that sometimes one of them overrules the other. Well, I also think that it's partially, uh, like, I, I know a lot of people who are in science, not necessarily to, I don't know, science to me, in the long run, is trying to prove how the world works, and how yeah. the world works is kind of, so I'm willing to bet there are some people out there who have a lot of faith, and they like science 
science because it's learning about the things that were given to us. Yeah. I don't think there's a disconnect between science and religion. I think there's a disconnect between religion and science, if that makes any sense. Yes. I, I, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. There's def, they're definitely, and especially around like certain topics like yeah. evolution and birth control. Yeah. There's a, fairly large disconnect so but that's beside the point he was a devout roman catholic and a scientist so he married a woman named anna thorntyke and they had five children together and then he went into medicine <laughs> rock was a highly regarded obstetrician gynecologist and a groundbreaking infertility specialist and he devoted most of his career to helping women with fertility problems conceive he was a pioneer in in vitro fertilization and sperm freezing which, considering he really worked up his practice in the 1920s, was groundbreaking. Because, like, in vitro fertilization and stuff was still kind of, like, not taboo per se, but, like, there was a, there were a lot of issues surrounding it even, like, when we were young. So, yeah, uh, I mean, like, yeah. that, that did not cease to happen since no. that time. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a lot more accepted now, but, like, it's definitely come a very long way. And the fact that he had such a big hand in its development so early on is really interesting. Yeah. So in the course of his practice, Rock witnessed the suffering women endured from unwanted pregnancies. He had seen collapsed wombs, premature aging, and desperation caused by too many mouths to feed. And presumably, he also saw the devastation of back alley abortions. The experiences of his patients had a profound impact on him, and despite the Catholic Church's opposition to contraceptives, he came to support contraception within the confines of marriage. So although he never went as far as to endorse birth control purely as a woman's right, Rock believed in the power of birth control to stem poverty and to prevent medical problems associated with pregnancy and aging and like that kind of thing. Like the more you get pregnant, the older you are, the worse it is for both mother and child. So right. being able to, you know, be like, my last pregnancy was extremely difficult. I can't have another child is huge. In 1931, Rock put his reputation on the line by signing a petition with 15 other prominent Boston physicians urging the repeal of the Massachusetts law prohibiting the sale of contraceptives. Risking excommunication, he was the only Catholic doctor to make that stand. Oh. Yeah. After the Catholic Church approved of the rhythm method in 1936, Rock was the first doctor to open a rhythm clinic in Boston. There, he taught Catholic women how to use the only birth control method that was permitted by their church. And for anyone who's not familiar, the rhythm method is essentially trying to only have sex when you are least likely to conceive, which at this time was a lot more difficult because, and like especially like, like early on, people thought that the time that you were the least like fertile was during your period mm -hmm. which is actually one of the times when you're most fertile so the exact opposite of what you wanted <laughs> the rhythm method had a lot of issues then and now but <laughs> beside the point in the 1940s rock taught at the harvard medical school where he educated his students on birth control something that was unheard of in medical schools at the time and in 1949 he co-authored a book called voluntary parenthood explaining birth control methods for the general reader so like people who don't have a medical degree could understand the concept behind planning your family and that kind of thing family planning for dummies i mean yeah it kind of is a it is a for dummies book essentially Dr. Rock was the first scientist to fertilize a human egg in a test tube in 1944 and among the first to freeze sperm cells for a year without impairing their potency. So like 
being able to fertilize an egg after the fact kind of thing. Trust me, I pretty much work at a sperm bank, so. That's true. (laughs) Yep. And that's not to say I'm there frequently. I make things that (laughs) freeze sperm. I love how you you had to clarify that. Yes. There are lots and lots and lots of unknown little Jonathans running around because Jonathan frequents the sperm bank. Yes. (laughs) No. Um, (laughs) Nope. You work for a refrigeration company. Please, children, do not find us using the information provided by Kylie in this episode. Oh, no. (laughs) Our secret's out. So by the time Dr. Gregory Pincus, who was the co-inventor of the combined oral contraceptive pill, approached Rock in the early 1950s about participating in the pill trials, Rock had also come to believe in the need for world population control. So like he had seen how desperate people could get and realized that like if you can't afford children, there should be a way to not have them voluntarily. The first thing I think about when you said the words world population control, it was definitely not birth control, but instead eugenics. Oh gosh, no. (laughs) Eugenics, genocide, you know. No, no, no. (laughs) Prevention of conception, right? rather than termination of life. Mm. Well, no, because it prevents you from, unless you want to call an unfertilized egg a baby, we're talking about the prevention of conception. I don't think we need to go down this road. (laughs) That's true. We don't need to take this dark and twisty path. Take your shovel, Kylie, and get it out of the pit that you're digging (laughs) and climb on and back up. Here's my hand. Come on, Yeah, 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 okay. So for years, Gregory Goodwin Pincus had been searching for a project that might establish his greatness. He became an instructor in general physiology at Harvard University in 1930 and was promoted in 1931 to an assistant professor, which is pretty good accomplishment because Harvard... Doesn't like to promote. (laughs) Shots fired. Well, there's a whole current issue going on right now about someone who didn't get tenure and like half the school's rioting about it. It's just, it's very, it's very not fun. Anyway, so in 1934, he was able to produce an in vitro fertilization in rabbit. And in 1936, he published his discoveries after his experiments. So to create the in vitro rabbit baby, he had he had removed the ovum from the mother rabbit and placed it in a solution mixture of saline and estrin. Afterwards, he placed this fertilized ovum back into the rabbit. His experiment became known as pinkogenesis because other scientists didn't seem to be able to attain the same results when they conducted the experiment themselves, which anyone familiar with like the scientific community, like peer review and like being able to replicate your findings is like essential. So the fact that they couldn't seem to do it was a fair issue. Yeah. Sometime between here and 1944, he seems to have been dismissed from Harvard and or left under unhappy terms. Um, it wasn't quite clear. Um, and he started his own laboratory apparently in a converted garage that became the Worcester Foundation for Experimental Biology in Shrewsbury, Massachusetts. Oh, neat. Yeah. So when Pincus met the feminist crusader Margaret Sanger in 1950 at a dinner, she seemed to know that he was the person to convince to work on the development of a birth control pill. She procured funding from the Planned Parenthood Federation of America to begin hormonal contraceptive research. And the general consensus at the time was that such a pill would never work. Um, And even if it did work, who would test it? Like, who who would you test it on and how would you test it? I'm sure we're not going to like that answer. Uh, well, I don't really get into some of the less savory parts of how some things have been tested in the past. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I avoided that. So uh, the other problem would be 
who would manufacture it, who would prescribe it, because 30 states and the federal government still had anti-birth control laws on the books. So federally illegal, 30 states also had it illegal. Birth control was a non-starter at this point. Pincus, however, had little left to lose and was willing to give it a shot. As one of his colleagues put it, quote, he wasn't afraid to go out on a limb because he didn't have any limb. Oh. (laughs) There was nowhere left to go but up. (laughs) So once Pincus had uh, settled roughly on the hormone progesterone as the key to his pill, he needed to build the team to do the scientific work, forge alliances with manufacturers, conduct the trials, and then, if all went well, spread the news of the coming invention so that it might have a chance to be accepted. He already had worked pretty well with Min Hui Chang, um, who was a Chinese-American reproductive biologist who had come to the Worcester Foundation on a fellowship from Pincus to learn the technique for in vitro fertilization. So he was a pretty obvious choice. They'd worked together and they worked well together and they had the same area of interest. But they still needed someone else, someone who would put the patients at ease with the idea of taking a medicine when they weren't ill. In 1952, Pincus settled on John Rock, who was a gynecologist respected by his peers and adored by his patients. Rock looked like a family physician from Central Casting in Hollywood. He was tall, slender, silver-haired, with a a gentle smile and a calm, deliberate manner. Even his name connoted strength, solidarity, and reliability. And Rock had one more thing going for him. He was Catholic. When Rock treated women for infertility, he would begin by taking a medical history and providing a complete physical exam. If the woman wasn't menstruating or if she wasn't menstruating regularly, Rock might order an endometrial biopsy. Rock was unusual among fertility specialists at the time because he also asked husbands to have their semen tested. Because heaven forbid the problem be with the husband. Uh Uh-huh. Shocker. The swimmers always swim. Gold medals all around. I'm going to punch you from across <laughs> here. So between the women seeking birth control and those patients who were trying to overcome infertility, Rock came to understand that not only human re- reproduction, but also a good deal about human relations. In the same time, he would see some women who were straining to raise more children than they could handle and others who were deeply wounded by their inability to get pregnant. Among the women with children... Many came asking for the only thing they'd ever heard of that would guarantee an end to their baby-making days, a hysterectomy. Yep. Which, for those who don't know, that is where they remove the uterus. So you can't grow any babies in there. No more plumbing. (laughs) So demand for fertility treatments exploded in the 1950s, but doctors offered little meaningful help. Beginning around 1950, Rock conducted a series of experiments on women struggling with what he called unexplained infertility. So people, women who were obviously healthy, had no history of problems or like their family had no history of infertility, but for some reason couldn't get pregnant. Okay. He suspected that some of the women were not conceiving because their reproductive systems were not fully developed. When a woman with such a condition did somehow become pregnant, the ensuing pregnancy helped her reproductive system to mature. Mind you, this is all like 1920s. Well, 1950s at this point, but this is all like 1950s theology behind it. There's more scientific things going on in here than maturity of your reproductive organs. <laughs> Sounds like a car jump start. Because it wasn't like teenagers who couldn't get pregnant. It was like people in their like 30s and 40s who couldn't get pregnant or like 20s and, you know, there. Like generally people who should be able to get pregnant because like they're not too old but couldn't. So to test his theory, he recruited 80 frustrated but valiantly adventuresome women for an experiment in which he would use hormones, progesterone, and estrogen, the same hormones that Pincus had been studying, to create pseudo-pregnancies. 
He confessed to the woman that he had no idea if it would work, but the woman trusted him and figured it was their best shot. So he started the woman on 50 milligrams of progesterone and 5 milligrams of estrogen and escalated gradually to 300 milligrams of progesterone and 30 milligrams of estrogen. When the first round of treatments ended, no one was dead and no one had become seriously ill, which for science is real freaking good. Hooray! (laughs) No deaths. Yeah. Um, This was good news. (laughs) Within months, the news got even better. 13 of the 80 women in Rock's care became pregnant when they'd stopped taking the hormones. Oh. Like, that's not a huge percentage, but like for 13 of those women, it's a complete world changer. Yeah. So Rock told colleagues that the hormone-induced pseudo-pregnancies seemed to have given their bodies a lift and helped them to become fertile. Soon, his fellow gynecologists were calling it the Rock Rebound. I saw that and laughed hysterically. And there's the name of the episode. (laughs) Oh, there we go. So when Pincus learned of Rock's work, he was pleased but not surprised that the progesterone and estrogen combo were having a contraceptive effect. The important thing to Pincus was the the plain fact that Rock's patients weren't dying. (laughs) Yep. Here was proof that it was safe to give large doses of progestins to women. The problem Rock had found was that when taking the hormones... They were the women were often convinced that they were pregnant because the hormones produced many of the same symptoms as pregnancy. The women became nauseated, their breasts grew larger and more tender, and they stopped menstruating. The women were heartbroken when Rock told them that no, they were not in fact pregnant, that the hormones were merely tricking their bodies into thinking and mimicking pregnancy. Pincus had a theory that their hormone levels would return to normal, their symptoms would ease, and then they would get their periods back. In 1952, he approached Rock about joining his team working on the contraceptive pill. His suggestion was to have Rock's patients be the first human recipients of an oral birth control pill. The woman would take Pincus's form of the pill, not Rock's, and they would study, be studied carefully to make absolutely certain that they weren't ovulating during their pseudo-pregnancies. If they still benefited from Rock's rebound, great. After all, both pills had the same hormones, but that wasn't the point. The point was proving that Pincus's pill would work as an effective contraceptive. In 1955, the team announced successful clinical use of progestins to prevent ovulation. Inovid, the brand name of the first pill, was approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and put on the market in 1957 as a menstrual regulator, so not birth control yet. In 1960, Inovid gained approval from the FDA for contraceptive use. And at this point, Rock was 70 years old. Oh, boy. Yeah. Over the next eight years, he campaigned vigorously for the Roman Catholic Church to approve the pill. He published a book titled The Time Has Come, A Catholic Doctor's Proposal to End the Battle Over Birth Control, and was subsequently featured in The Time Magazine and Newsweek, and was given a one-hour interview on NBC. In 1958, Pope Pius XII had declared the use of the pill to treat menstrual disorders wasn't contrary to Catholic morals, but he also didn't really, like, endorse it. Um, Nevertheless, Rock believed it was only a matter of time before the Catholic Church approved its use as a contraceptive. Unfortunately, in 1968, the papal encyclical Humanae Vitae laid out definitively the Catholic opposition to hormonal and all other artificial means of contraception. Rock was profoundly disappointed. Consequently, he withdrew from the church that he had spent his entire life in and pretty much stopped going at all. He became a target of bitter attacks by some who called him a renegade, and he did not succeed in changing Catholic theology. But he stimulated much discussion in and outside of the church, 
When questioned about the rationale for his battle, he told friends that as a boy of 14, he was told by a Catholic priest in Massachusetts, quote, John, always stick to your conscience. Never let anyone else keep it from you. And I mean anyone else. And he didn't. Smart words. Yeah. When Rock died in New Hampshire at age 94 on December 4th, 1984, he was still bitterly disappointed by the church's refusal to change its position on the pill. Yet, despite the church's continued opposition to the pill, a profound change had taken place among Catholic believers. Since the encyclical, millions of Catholics around the world have chosen to follow their own consciences on the matter of birth control. Rock's views on the pill, once daring and radical, had become commonplace among the rank and file of the church. Although he died feeling that he had failed in his mission, John Rock's contribution to the debate on birth control had a profound impact on the lives of countless Catholic women, and really women of all or no faiths, because without Rock and Pincus and Chang, women would still be struggling to have a say in when and if they wanted to become pregnant. Wow. And that's John Rock. Cool. I really enjoyed that research. <laughs> yeah, that was cool. It's very much in line with like, what I studied in grad school and like where my interests lie. I, there are a couple of things that I saw that like after that original trial, Pincus went on to um, test the birth control in like asylums and stuff. So like that's getting into the scary area. But from as far as I could tell, Rock wasn't involved in that. Because, like, I mean, by the time it got approved, he was 70. Right. Like, he wasn't actively participating in anything anymore, so. You hear that, 70-year-olds? You can't participate in nothing anymore. That's not what I meant. <laughs> not what I meant at all. Heck, uh, we saw, I saw Bernadette Peters on Broadway in Hello, Dolly. She's 70. And she was still, like, dancing and parading around on stage. So Sigourney Weaver. Like. Oh, yeah, I forgot yeah. about that. Yeah. Well, I just watched the, uh, s- uh the, the. Sound Sondheim 90th anniversary celebration thing, 90th birthday celebration. And Bernadette Peters was the like last person to perform because they did it like alive, like because like COVID pandemic quarantine. Um, they did like a, a like Zoom essentially, but they like broadcast it and stuff. And Bernadette Peters was last because like Bernadette Peters has been in like an insane number of Sondheim productions and like original roles in an insane number of Sondheim productions. And she she sang she did her song and I'm sitting there the entire time barely listening because I can't get over the fact that this person who I know is 70 years old is flawless mm-hmm. and I was dying inside because I'm like I'm 27 and I can't even look that good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, are we on to call to action? Yes. So you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Halfwit History. You can. Email us at halfwitpod at gmail.com. Yeah, send us suggestions, um, comments, words of support, uh, whatever you know you feel like sending our way. Happy thoughts would be great. Kylie <laughs> needs some happy thoughts. Kylie needs lots of happy thoughts. I need them too, <laughs> but Kylie needs them. Yes, Kylie dyed her hair pink the day after we found out we were postponing our wedding. And like it was the first thing I did Like that morning. I got up, I showered, and I dyed my hair. And John- Jonathan didn't even put up a fight. Nope. I was like, I'm dyeing my hair. And he's like, how can I help? <laughs> you deserve it. Let's go. <laughs> it was great. So now my hair is a wonderful pastel pink and I love it. <laughs> uh huh. You can visit our website at www.halfwit-history.com. 
and want to give a shout out to the fishermen for the use of our theme song another day you can find their links in our show notes yeah go check it out we have a ko-fi so if you guys want to send us a tip or something like that that would be awesome or a pity pity penny (laughs) (laughs) yes for me (laughs) pity penny for kylie So you can find that at ko-fi.com forward slash Halfwood History. Yes. On to fun facts? Yes, please. Okie doke. My fun fact. Oh, yeah. You said you only have one, so you should go first. Don't. Don't reveal the secrets. (laughs) Don't pull the curtain back. Don't part the kimono. (laughs) Don't part the kimono. So on March 29th of 1848, Niagara Falls stops flowing for 30 hours due to an ice jam. That's a long time. That's a lot of ice to get Niagara Falls to stop. Yeah. Yeah. That is a lot of ice. What's yours? On March 23rd, 1883, the Edmonds Act, also known as the Edmonds Anti-Polygamy Act, is adopted by the U.S. to suppress polygamy. 1,300 men were later imprisoned under that act. I mean, yeah. <laughs> like, what well, What would happen if like we got married and then someone's like, whoop, no more straights. Oh, well, that's true. And it's like, well, we're not going to not do this. That's fair. I, was just, I just thought this was a rather fitting fun fact considering a lot of those uh, second and third wives probably could have used a contraceptive pill. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, (laughs) I'm very out of it. Yep. So thanks for listening. (laughs) If you're still listening, (laughs) I've been your halfwit. And I'm your historian sometimes. Whoop. (laughs) (laughs) And we hope to see you next week. Bye. Me.